Um, if, you are, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. But if you have your Bible, great turn to Philippians chapter 4 once again. We're looking at two verses this morning, just verses 8 and 9, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. If you remember, the Apostle Paul goes from gospel theology in chapter 3, verses 2 through 12, to gospel practicality, how, how the truths of the gospel change our lives, how the truths of the gospel change our behavior. And we will see today how the truth of the gospel changes or should change our thinking. As I said last week, what you think about God and how you dwell about, how, what you dwell about God, and, and even if you don't believe in God, that, that's still a concept and a thought about God. It affects the way you live, and I live. So that's what we're going to look at today, thinking uh, about the things of God. So let me begin by reading to you the, the Word of God, the infallible, authoritative, inspired Word of God, chapter 4. What I want to do is I want to go uh, start in verse 1 and work our way through verse 9, even though verse 8 and 9 really is our text this morning. So keep it in some context. Hear the Word of the Lord, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, ESV is what I'm reading from. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syndiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received, heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Remember in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to continue preaching the gospel in Asia. And then through a vision, he was told to preach the gospel in Europe, to come to Europe, to a little city called Philippi in Macedonia. The first converts we saw in Acts chapter 16 was a successful businesswoman, Lydia, a seller of expensive purple uh, goods from Thyatira, and then there was a, a demon-possessed, set-free slave girl, and then a, a prison guard. The Apostle Paul loves this little church, and I can't help but think, as he looks back at, at what may be the most unlikely people who come to faith, and yet join him in the mission. Paul was a man deeply committed to the Missio Dei, the mission of God, the rescue of sinners, through the demonstrating and the declaring of the gospel. He loved that church. He remembered that church. He remembers that church. And now after 10 years, Paul writes this church a letter. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's chained to a, a Roman soldier 24-7. The occasion, well, he wants to say thank you for a gift that was given to him by Epaphrodites. We'll look at more of that next week. 
But the letter also became an occasion to remind them of gospel joy that was also available to them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Gospel joy is the theme. It's when we rejoice in Christ, we can, who maintains and we receive that joy because it's eternal. It is, it is given to us by God himself. Jesus, who is the gospel, said that when we receive him as Lord and Savior and we are born of his spirit, that his joy will be in us and that our joy will be full. Gospel joy is eternal because God is in us, giving us that joy. Paul says, look, I, 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 find, it, I find myself rejoicing, full of joy, remembering your partnership with me, chapter 1. I'm even going to rejoice if the gospel is preached with false motives, but as long as it's being preached. He is joyful over the prospect of returning someday, maybe getting out of his change for the progress and joy of their faith. But then he tells them, chapter 1, verse 27, to live worthy, whether I come or not, live worthy, citizens worthy of the gospel. He tells them that his joy would be complete if they have the same mind and the same love toward one another. If they serve one another with humility, sacrificially caring for one another. Paul points to Jesus in the gospel as the ultimate example of humility and sacrifice. Chapter 2, verses 6 and following. He says, rejoice when you receive faithful men like Timothy and Epaphrodites with all joy. But Paul says in order to maintain joy, it must be rooted in the truth. And he goes against the false teachers who would add to the work of Christ, add to the person and work of Christ. Will we know, and he knows, will rob you of your joy. And after he gives a beautiful description of Christ's incarnation, condescension, and exaltation in chapter 2, he delivers them the heart of the gospel in chapter 3, verse 9. I told you this last week, a verse you should at least know where to find. That he wants to be found in Christ, to be in union with Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, trying to work my way into a right relationship with God. But he says that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The heart of the gospel, that we are made right, justified, forgiven, in a right relationship by faith alone in Christ alone. And that should bring joy to our hearts. But then Paul goes on. And he says that he, and by us implication, that we are not only to receive the gospel and recognize the gospel, but we are to press on in the gospel. You remember in chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, to press on in the gospel, to grow, to grow in the grace, to grow in the knowledge, to grow in the power of the gospel, grow in likeness of Christ. How? He tells us in verse 17 through 21 of chapter 3. There are examples to follow or to imitate, enemies to avoid, and an eternity to embrace. That's the end of chapter 3. When we get to chapter 4, verse 1, there's a transitional verse where he tells us not only to, to press on in the gospel, but now we say, stand firm in the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 1. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Last week we looked at how do we do that. How do, how do we stand firm? He taught us how to press on. Now he says, stand firm in the Lord. Paul says, look, the unity and humility. Chapter 4, verse 2. Is very important if you want to stand firm. There must be unity and humility. Next, he says, you want to stand firm? We must rejoice in the Lord always. Knowing that our joy is not in our circumstance, our happenstance, but in a relationship with the eternal God. 
If we want to stand firm, we must also be sweetly reasonable, right? We talked about this last week. Consider others and, and be gentle to others. We want to stand firm. Verse 6 gives us the only prohibition. You want to stand firm? Do not be anxious about anything. Do not worry about anything, but with prayer and supplication. Make your request known to God. You can't have the joy of the Lord. You can't stand firm when your heart is riddled with anxiety. Verse 6 and 7 tells us that we ought to make our request. We ought to pray. We ought ought to petition with thanksgiving. And, And God will promise to give us his peace, his divine peace. Something we can't get ourselves. Something we will never completely understand ourselves. It's divine. It's defending peace. We talked about that last week. He will guard your hearts and minds. A peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, verse 7. Our text this morning, verses 8 and 9, continues the theme of standing firm in the Lord. Right? And, and Paul's going to say, in order to stand firm, you also need to control your thinking. Control your thinking. He knows how worry and anxiety and other wrong thinkings can paralyze our lives. Can paralyze our lives. Man, have we not seen that over this past week? Paul is aware that our minds can, uh, can conjure up all kinds of thoughts and that our thought life can draw us away from standing firm in the Lord and living a life of faith. In fact, our thought life is really uh, foundational. Proverbs 23, 7 says this, For he, for as he, or for as she, with thinks, For as he thinks within himself, so is he. If you're here this morning, you're struggling with with anxiety, worry, and fear, and things that afflict our minds, Paul has something to say to us this morning. And what I want to do this morning is something maybe a little different than we're used to. I, I want to back into the text. I usually just jump to the text. But I want to do some background um, before we jump into the text about the battle of the mind. So we can put things in perspective, and then we'll jump to chapter uh, 4, verses 8 and 9. So just, just walk with me through this. So I want to talk about the battle, this battle of our minds, this thoughts, and, and ways in which we can overcome that and stand firm in the Lord. So I want to talk about the proponents that are against us, the place and weapons for us, the proper stance in us, and the practices entrusted to us. So I'll put that up for you. So number one, you and I both need to know that we have an enemy. We are proponents that are against us, protagonists that are against us. There are two. One is the flesh, the flesh. That's the part of you, that's the part of me that wants to live independent. It's been trained to live independent of God. Your your Bible might call it a sinful nature. It's the word sarks. You see, each one of us was born with a sinful nature, a flesh. This, This sinful disposition, our thoughts and the way we conduct our lives have been sinful and rebellious towards God. We've been ingrained, we've been taught ways to live, to succeed, and to strive on our own abilities, our own methods, our own ideas. The very opposite of what faith does and what God is calling us to be and to do. That's why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, to not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now the verb, do not be conformed, is a verb that is saying stop doing what you have already been doing. Something that is already going on. I think it's the New American Standard kind of picks up that verb and it says do not conform any longer to this world. Stop. When, when, a Christian become, when, when a believer turns from their sin and believes on Jesus and is born again, born anew, they receive a new heart and a new nature. But no one comes along, which I wish they did, and can press the clear button in our brain. The old patterns of thinking, processing information, perspectives on life, are very real and ingrained in our thought life. We talk about brainwashing in a bad way, and it can be. But some of us needs our brains washed. When we come to faith, our sins are forgiven. But our predisposition to, be, to behave and to think, certain ways we've developed over time as we adjust to our environment, uh, according to our, our, our worldview, has been ingrained. And sometimes you hear things like this. Stop listening to the old tapes in your head. I know it's kind of... Uh, or stop listening to the, same, to the old messages in your head. Or how about this one? Stop listening to the committee in your head. You have old patterns of ways of thinking to respond or to think about yourself. In particular, old ways to try to answer questions like, am I loved? If you really knew me, would you love me? How can I be accepted? Do I matter? What's my purpose? And we build ingrained patterns of thinking on how to get that or how to try to receive that. The fleshly thinking thinking patterns and practices need to be changed. They need to be renewed. It's the flesh. The second proponent against our, the battle of our thoughts is the devil himself. John 8, you, he calls, he says, Jesus is saying, you are your father, the devil, and you want to do the fa- desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil, the enemy, is an active individual in the world today who opposes your walk and my walk with Christ. He is always trying to draw us away from our walk of faith. And he continually attacks us. And he attempts to, to establish negative, uh, worldly patterns of thoughts in our minds, which will in turn produce negative, worldly patterns in our behavior. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul makes it very clear to the church how the enemy has blinded the minds, blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he's afraid that some, that, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, the enemy is not all-powerful, and the enemy is not all-knowing. God is. God alone is. But he does very well in studying me. He does very well in studying you and watching, knows our behaviors, knows about us just enough so that he can draw us or try to infect darts, throw his darts in our minds to get us to dwell on untruths. He knows right 
the right temptation, you know this to be true, at the right time with the right temptation to draw us away. And he does it through our thinking. Paul tells the church in, in Ephesus to take up the whole arm of God that you may be what? Able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore, fastened, having fastened on the belt of truth, there's that word again, the breastplate of righteousness, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Then he says, and take on the helmet of salvation, protect your mind, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we keep seeing this over and over again, the truth and the word. We have proponents, flesh and the devil, and the essence of our battle is in the mind. We need to guard our hearts and our minds. Philippians 4, 7 tells us, against the message, against the fiery, devil fiery uh, darts, if we want to stand firm. If we want to stand firm, we have to protect and battle against our thoughts. Now, we have, again, fighting from within, our own fleshly ingrained ideas, and the enemy. How do we do that? Turn, I have it up there, but turn in your Bibles, if you have it, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Very important passage of Scripture, but it talks about battling the mind. First, Second Corinthians chapter 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but what? Have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every what? Thought captive to obey Christ. Our battle is in the mind. But our weapon is divine power. We cannot overcome negative and sinful thoughts that bombard our minds and strength by our own abilities. It's got to be a God thing. Do you remember the first Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Some of you probably weren't even born when that happened. But anyway, I'm sure you saw it. If not, it's a great movie. Indiana is being chased by these men, these Arabs with turbans on their head, and they corner him in this marketplace, and, 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 and the scene is frozen, and this guy pulls out this big sword, and he twirls it and does all this kind of fancy stuff. Indiana Jones, not really impressive, kind of gives him a look like, are you kidding? Pulls out a gun, shoots him, puts the gun back in, and steps off. Principle, don't come to a gunfight with a knife, no matter how much you think you can twirl it, right? So don't think that we can win this battle on our own. Don't come to this fight with your own weapons. They're divinely given. Number two, they're not only divinely, but they're destructive. Look what it says. Divinely powerful to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, the word stronghold in Paul's day was used regularly for the, 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 the giant walls, brick and mortar, walls that were built around cities, fortresses. They would, what they would do is when they would conquer land or they would, they would, they would uh, settle in a place, they would find a, 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 a hill and they would build their city on that hill and surround it with wall, a wall, safer that way. 
you got a fight going up, you can see, and there's protection. That's what that word means. Paul is saying, look, there are strongholds to destroy strongholds. There, there are strongholds, there are fortresses in our minds that have been established, that have been burned into our minds one brick at a time through repetition, traumatic experiences, books, movies, music, false beliefs. Again, how am I loved? How am I accepted? Do I matter? What's my purpose? And he says the way we destroy the strongholds the fortresses that raised up against the knowledge of God is how? By taking every thought captive to obey Christ. If it's not of Christ, I am to reject the thought. Okay? Now, I, I, some of you may not have heard this before, but uh, maybe, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. There's a false teacher by the name of Norman Vincent Peale, known as the power of positive thinking. That's not what I'm talking about. That's garbage. Okay, that that guy taught that you could you could change future events by your thinking. It promotes self, it promotes self, it promotes uh, um, faith in oneself. That's not what I'm talking about. He actually wrote a, a, a. This is what he wrote about this this power of positive thinking of this law of attraction. He calls it. When you expect the best, Peel writes, you release a magnetic force in your mind, which by law of attraction tends to bring the best to you. That's paganism, not Christianity. What Paul is saying is that positive, the power of positive believing, trusting, relying on who God is, what God has said, and what God has done. That's a different story. Something I learned several years ago I want to share with you from Dr. Neil Anderson, who helped me to, and I don't do it perfectly, all right, but he helped me understand what does first frame thinking, what does it mean to take, excuse me, take captive every thought, obedience to Christ. And he called it first-frame thinking. And what he teaches, and, and I thought it was wonderful, is like an old film. I was talking to Ricky. I'm like, I hope people understand when I talk about old film. Like an 8-millimeter, right? I know some of you young. Think of, think of a, 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 an 8-millimeter, a reel, that had this plastic thing in it, and, and it, would, <laughs> it would go through a light, and it would show on the wall. I know that sounds like foreign to some of you, but they're actually... That actually happened, right? So you have this movie projector, and you're showing a movie, and you would take the film, and you would, you would bring it through the reel, and you would bring it through where there was a light, and then another reel, and it would run, and you would actually watch a movie, right? I mean, there's frames even in all our digital uh, movies, right? And when you're tempted to believe a lie, on the threshold of that decision, you have to stop the film. You've got to stop the frame, before the movie plays, okay, before the movie plays, because once you consider the option and mull over the lie or that which thought which is, is tempting and that which thought, thought which is luring, once the movie begins to play and you're five minutes into the movie, it's much harder to say no because it has invoked all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of emotion. And now you're down that road already and it's much harder. But like a movie theater, like a movie projector, if the frame comes into the mind that is not of Christ, stop it. Before the movie continues, it's much harder to stop it once the movie is all the way in 10 minutes into it. If a wife thinks, let me start this secret bank account just in case my marriage doesn't work. She's already have these sinful options in her mind. 
If we don't control the temptation in the first frame, we run the risk of temptation to control you. Men, right? We see pictures. Summer comes, right? It's difficult. We, we, we've seen these uh, provocative pictures and we're tempted to lust. We must stop the frame. We must stop the thought. Take it captive to the truth. My relationship with sin is over. Christ is my treasure. I'm not going to think on those things. Much easier to do in the first frame than 7,000 frames down the road. Does that make sense? Some of us have been told we're no good. You never amount to nothing. You don't matter. You're not loved. You have an opportunity to dwell on that lie or believe the truth of what God says about us in the gospel. That is why just taking every thought captive isn't enough. It has to be replaced with the truth. First thing we need is the renewing our minds. Proper stance in us. We have new minds. We have a new spirit dwelling within us. Jesus said in John 7, 15, 17, 15, I'm not asking you to take, take my followers, my disciples out of the word world, but to keep them from the evil one. He's praying for us. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. So Jesus is praying that we're set apart and sanctified, apart from sin, devoted to God by the truth. Then he says, your word is truth. We're not pawns in a struggle. We know who wins. Christ defeated the enemy. Satan is defeated. We're no longer slaves to our old pattern of thinking. The Bible tells us that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Not perfectly, I understand that. But King Jesus has has forgiven us of our sins. He has given us the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God. We've been given the weapons and the artillery to win the battle of our mind. In fact, our text this morning prescribes uh, six specific things and two general things that we are to think about if we're going to win the battle of our minds and be free from worry, from anxious anxiety, and able to stand firm. So Paul early said, look, relinquish our anxiety and our worry with prayer, but now he says replace our worry and anxiety with the truth. Look with me at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The word think, you can underline it in your Bible, the word think is not simply to have thoughts. The word think means to give proper weight, proper value to something, to keep mental record, to calculate. And the Philippians were to meditate on these things by turning them over and over and over in their mind. Of course, as the scripture says, until we have what? The mind of Christ. Now these verses, these virtues, these six virtues we'll look at in a minute, um, were popular in Jesus' day in the Roman, uh, the Greco-Roman world. Yet Paul takes them and said, look, this, these are the first God's idea. In fact, you need to look at these virtues through a biblical grid. Through what the scriptures 
teach, they will then take on a deeper and more meaningful reality when they're expressed through the truth and the power of God and for the glory of God. The first God's idea. So look at number one with me. Whatever is true, whatever is genuine, whatever is sincere, whatever is dependable. Think on these things. Truth can be spoken of outside of Scripture. We get that. But truth begins with Jesus, who is the embodiment of truth. I am the way, singular and exclusive. I am the truth. The way, the truth, and the life. Colossians 1.5 says, the word of truth, the gospel. Jesus says, the word of God is true. Truth begins with God. Dr. Bruce Barton says this, truth includes facts and statements that are, one, in accordance with reality, not lies, rumors, or embellishments. I guess we have to delete our social media. Number two, sincere, not deceitful with evil moral motives. And three, loyal, faithful, proper, reliable, and genuine. Truth, he says, is a characteristic of God, Romans 3. Everything that is true is from God because all truth is God's truth. Therefore, the mind who is contemplating the truth will first see Christ, the word of God and the gospel, but also will wisely live their life by rejecting irrational thinking. They will speak the truth in love to one another, but it must dwell first on the word of God. It must first dwell on the eternal truth, the embodiment of truth, who's Christ. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is respectable, whatever is worthy of honor, honor has to do with value. Whatever things are to be greatly respected, whatever is worthy, adored, think about things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, righteous, that which is in harmony with God's holiness, for which is, because all that is just and all is righteous comes from the character and the attributes of God. Believers who have accepted Christ and received from him the imputation of his righteousness should have right thinking. That's what he's saying. Doing the right thing. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, not contaminated, without blemish, whatever is pure, morally clean, morally pure, not, not, just, not just in a sexual sense, although that's, that's certainly part of it, but thought, speech, Actions, morally clean, morally pure. Don't think about the junk. Think about that which is pure. Whatever is lovely, whatever is pleasing, whatever is kind, whatever is attractive, whatever is gracious, generous, lovable. Kent Hughes in his commentary says this, lovely includes not only what is morally lovely, but what is aesthetically lovely. All that is beautiful in creation. And in human lives, from a sunset to a symphony, to caring for the poor and powerless, all things beautiful, end quote. Number six, whatever is commendable, that which has good repute, that which is highly regarded and thought well of, whatever is attractive, praiseworthy, the kind of conduct that is spoken of highly by other people, it's good and right. Think on that which is commendable. doesn't mean we stick our head in the sand. Anything that's negative... The problem is you stick your head in the sand, guess why? You're taking your brain with you. But it does mean that we are not to dwell on untruths and avoid dishonorable things and not allow them to control our thoughts. 
If you think, I'm going off script, I may get fired, but that's okay. Blue, red, Democrat, Republican, I don't care where you stand politically, but if you think all the headlines that you're reading over the past whatever is true, come and see me after the service. Be careful, family. Six plural adjectives, now two singular nouns with the particle if. If, if, not if, maybe, that's not what if means in the original language. If is a matter of fact. If there is any excellence, morally excellence, kind of wrapping things up, morally and wonderfully good, if there's anything worthy of praise, if there's something that the believers are being praised for, or anything that God considers praiseworthy, think continuously over and over, give proper weight, proper value, make mental note over and over, meditate on those things. Meditation. Maybe a lost art? Very biblical. Meditating is not emptying your mind, right? Meditating, biblical meditation, is actively calling to mind the proper weight and the value of the Word of God, the works of God, the ways of God, the promises and the purposes of God. It's dwelling on and thinking over and over the various things that God has revealed Himself to us in Scripture, not Twitter, be careful. Now, saying we shouldn't stand up for what we believe is right, I'm all for that. Get, act, get, get involved, I'm all for that. But be careful. Where's your hope? Where's your trust? Where's the peace? If everything you've been dwelling on over the past week has brought great peace to you, or not, don't raise your hand. If we meditate on God's word, it'll humble us, it'll strengthen us, encourage us. It'll connect our mind and our will, our hearts and our head. It'll affect our desires. Lincoln Duncan writes this. The idea is for the truth to so take hold of our desires that we begin to desire the right thing rather than the wrong thing, the permanent thing rather than the temporary thing, the lovely thing rather than the ugly thing, the true thing rather than the false thing, end quote. Where is your mind dwelling but that's not enough. Paul says, look, let's move your, action, your thoughts to your action. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Notice Paul used four verbs. Drive home his teaching. And he begins again as he'd done before with imitation. What you have learned and received... My instruction to you as your pastor, as your church planter, the things I've explained to you about Christian truth and living, heard and seen is my example. So not only my explanation, but my example as an apostle, as a fellow brother in Christ, as I am suffering and serving the Lord both with you and when I'm not with you. What you have learned and received, what you heard and seen in me. You know, Paul knew about meditating on the Word of God. And he knew how important it was to, to seek after things and to, to think on things that are morally excellent and praiseworthy. But he also knew that those truths had to go from the mind to the heart to the will. 
That's where the rubber hits the road, is it not? Paul tells us to put into practice, apply these things to your life, what you have, what you have learned and received, heard and seen in me, practice these things. Interesting, the word practice, proso, means to perform something repeatedly, habitually, as a regular practice. It is a word that we use when we say a doctor has a practice. A doctor has a practice. It's his continuous, regular way of life. It's different to say, you know what, I'm going to practice playing the drums. I'm going to start, I'm going to learn, and I'm going to practice and work on my skills. That's different. Right? So if you, have, you need brain surgery, your hope is that your brain surgeon is not practicing on you. But that he has a practice, and he's regularly and consistently being a good surgeon, doing what, he's, what he does, and you're in good hands. And Paul is saying that, you, that this should be your, your practice, your, your pattern, your way of life. The things you've learned and heard and received in me, like living in unity and humility around the gospel, like rejoicing in the Lord always, like being reasonable and considerate to others, like not being anxious, but pray with thanksgiving, give your request to God, like, like whatever's true and honorable, just, lovely, uh, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think on these things, practice those things, let those things be your regular pattern of life, that is how we stand firm in the Lord. Paul says, relinquish our anxiety through prayer, replace our anxiety with proper thinking, and result in a changed life. Now, let me get real practical, give you two things as we get ready to close. Number one, how how do we do that? Family, listen, we do it together. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Start by living life together, encouraging one another. Spur one another on to good works. Live in community together. Paul was able to say what you heard, seen, what I've taught you, and how I live my life. Practice those things. The only way he could say that is if he lived life with them. They saw his life. They, they, they saw the things he thought about. And how he lived his life. That's the only way. Is a living life with the believers in Philippi. So let me ask, are you in a community group? Are you not only in a community group, are you intentionally making time and effort to live life together with other brothers and sisters here at Christ, as, as brothers in Christ? We were not, we're not meant to stand firm alone. We need each other. Number one, do it together. Number two, memorize scripture. I don't hear about that much anymore. Especially in areas of struggle where, where you know that your flesh, your ingrained pattern of thinking and the enemy can have a, have a stronghold in your life. Begin to practice first frame thinking. Grab that frame if it's not of God. We must replace patterns with the truth. Memorize scripture. When a thought wants to play in your head that is not true, take it captive and replace it with the truth. I hope this sounds familiar. Because we tell people all the time here at King's Chapel to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Belong to God, not by anything I have done, not by trying real hard to justify myself, to find meaning, acceptance, love in myself 
We belong to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. In the gospel, I'm his child. I'm his prized possession. I matter. I'm significant. I'm valued. I'm accepted. I am loved, not because of who I am, but because of who he is and because of all that Christ has done through grace. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Luther says, beat it in your heads. That's the only thing that makes us acceptable to God is Christ's all-sufficient, atoning sacrifice on the cross. He alone satisfied God's demands for us. He alone saves us. It's not by works. It's by Christ's work. He alone takes the wrath we deserve in our place. We deserve to have our blood shed, yet Jesus shed his blood as our substitute. He received the curse, we get the blessing. He lived that perfect life, obeying the Father completely. And now by faith, our sin has been given to him, his righteousness is imputed to us. Now listen, family, I say all that to say that. When that's the foundation, when you are preaching the gospel to yourself every day, okay, and you're gospel-centered in your thinking, and a thought comes to you that this, wow, you sinned again. You keep falling in this area. God doesn't forgive you. He's done with you. Well, the gospel says, if we confess our sons' sins, he, not you, he is faithful and righteous and just to forgive me of all my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. When, when a thought comes into your head is, I am, I am unlovable. Who really cares about me? I, I am unworthy or I am, I, am, I am not loved. He brought me forth. He rescued me, Psalm 18, because he delighted in me. Psalm 13, 5, I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Maybe you struggle with unwantedness. Remind ourselves through the gospel. Chapter 8, verse 38, I'm convinced neither death nor life, nothing presence or powers, nor height nor death, nothing in all creation will separate me from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel. When the devil points a finger and wants to condemn you, remember the gospel, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You struggle with anxiety, cast all your anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares about you. He cares for you. Why? Because of the gospel. This is not, this is not mental gymnastics. This is standing on the truth of the gospel. And look what he says in the end. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We already learned from verse 7 that God's promise of peace is a divine peace, a peace that he gives. It's a a defending peace. He'll guard our hearts and minds. It'll guard our hearts and minds. But now God's peace is a dwelling peace. The peace of God will be with you. It's not just, it's just, it's not simply the gift of peace. It is the, the gift of the peace giver himself. You see that? When Christ controls our thoughts, his presence will ever be present. We have God himself. The one that we sinned against in our mind forgives us and grants us a new mind. As we look to the Savior, as we look to his righteousness for daily renewal, as you do, we'll have the peace of God and the God of peace himself will be with you. Family, show me someone who is grounded in the word, who memorizes the word, who knows the word, who has the word of God richly dwelling within them, who, who, who have godly thoughts that produce Christ-exalting practices. And I'll show you someone who's standing firm. Standing firm, conquering anxiety, anxiety winning the battle of the mind, 
and whose life is stable. Now, I want to close with this. I know, and many of you know, that sometimes things happen in our lives that, that blow us up, that, that, that shake us and rock us. They rock our world. They shake us to our core. And we find ourselves anxious. We find our minds racing. I know. I've been there. But the way back is the same. It's everything we talked about today. To stand firm is being humble, is rejoicing, is praying, is turning our burdens over. The Lord is near. It's receiving from him his promise of of peace. It is thinking and dwelling on the truth. It is putting into practice the things that we need to get back to doing. So I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're not standing firm. There's a way back. And maybe you are standing firm and and you can rejoice in, in God's power, in God's goodness to you. The band can come up, and I, and I want to share with you, as they come up, I want to share with you the songs we're going to sing. Well, the first song we're going to sing is Here is Love. And we're not just singing. This is a time of prayer. This is a time of worship of our God. Here is love. Thy, thy truth directs me by the Spirit, by the Word. Your grace is my need, is meeting. I trust in thee, my Lord. Thy grace, my need, is meeting as I trust the Lord. And then we're going to sing, to close with this song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A bulwark never failing. You know what a bulwark is? A fortress. He's our fortress. And though this world with devil's fills should threaten to do us, but we'll not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. A mighty fortress is our God. Ain't that true? Can we respond in prayer and truth as we, as we sing those songs to the Lord and standing on his truth this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, giving us uh, some clarity today. And, and Lord, we are in different places, many of us, um, at different times in our lives, Lord. But, but we ask that as we sing these songs, as we heard the word preached, as we wrestle with what you have said in your word, God, please, as we sing, help us to stand firm in you today. That we have, we have you as our rock, as our fortress. We will not be shaken. Our hope is in you Burn that in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.